0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. And today we're going to talk a little bit about China and Taiwan. heard a lot about it in the news. Probably, oh, they're going to invade. It's going to be terrible. World War Three is imminent. But our guest today is Zach Yost. He is Young Voices contributor, and he's also a freelance writer and researcher. He is the co-host of the War Economy and State podcast, and he was a fall 2021 Marcellus Policy Fellow Institute with the John Quincy Adams Society and has been published in a variety of outlets. Check out all of his stuff at Twitter at Zachary Yost, Y-O-S-T. Zach, thanks so much. I don't know. Do you prefer Zach or Zachary? Zach's great. Thanks so much for Uh, having me on. Absolutely. So glad to have you here. Love all the books in the background. It can relate. So tell us a little bit about Taiwan. We, we haven't covered this in depth, and I'm sure a lot of people get confused about it. Why would China want to invade Taiwan? I didn't even know there were two different countries or maybe they're the same country. <laughs> what is and Taiwan? Where is it? And why do the Chinese? So Taiwan is an island about 90 to 100
1: miles off the coast of mainland China. And officially, it is the Republic of China. It's the successor state of the Republic of China that was founded way back at the beginning of the 20th century. It's the side that lost the Chinese Civil War and all that sort of stuff. Technically, the government still claims that it is the sovereign ruler of all of (laughs) mainland China. And it has disputes with every country that borders China, like it doesn't even recognize Mongolia as existing and things like that. And it has been a partner of the US for a very long time, going back to the Second World War. Then after it lost the Civil War, and Daishik, who many listeners have probably heard of, retreated to the island. The U.S. provided varying amounts of aid over the year. At one point, there were 70,000 troops stationed in Taiwan, American troops. And the People's Republic of China claims that Taiwan is a breakaway province. It is not. It's not an independent country. Most of the world no longer recognizes it as the china for instance it got kicked off of the (laughs) security council at the united nations and the seat was given to the people's republic of china
0: and so for decades and decades that take place because that's not something i've heard so the taiwanese government considers itself the rightful ruler of all of china and then the ccp considers itself the ruler of taiwan and so when did that switch happen when did it, it go from the world recognizing or the, US, the recognizing- 70s. Okay. Yeah, the
1: all 70s. Right. Nixon was a big reason for that. Went to China. It was to do an end run around the Soviets because all the communists hated each other. So became friendly with China to screw over the Soviet Union is how that came about. Also, there's lots of frustration with the. Taiwanese was like delusional that they were going to reinvade and all sorts of stuff and reclaim China. And when that happened in the 70s, basically, Congress passed the, I think it was called the Taiwan Relations Act. And this act does not, the U.S. does not guarantee to defend or uphold Taiwanese de facto independence or anything like that. It just says that the U.S. is by law advocated, obligated to sell weapons to Taiwan so it can defend itself. We have no treaty obligation to defend Taiwan. And I want to make an important clarification here, but you'll see funny memes online that like, oh, mainland China is West Taiwan and things like that. And people say we should recognize Taiwanese independence and things like that. Taiwan itself does not want that. And it's a very, very contentious issue within domestic Taiwanese politics about what Taiwan is. Taiwan considers itself to be the Republic of China. And while that's obviously a fiction at this point, and most of the population that especially younger identifies as Taiwanese, not as Chinese, It is they understand that it would be disastrous and really worse in relations with China itself, if they were to declare their independence, meaning we're no longer the Republic of China and we relinquish our claims to the mainland, we are now just Taiwan.
0: So it's this lasting piece of historical fiction in the government that they hold on to, that they can't really get rid of. So they're suspended in limbo. So uh, that, that's interesting that they don't really consider themselves. Uh, so they don't think of themselves like Ukraine. So your article that you wrote in Law and Liberty, which is titled Taiwan is not Ukraine, had a lot of really interesting facts. There is it analogous to Ukraine in terms of their national identity, where there's part of Ukraine that sees itself as an independent country and part of Russia that sees itself as we're part of Russia. Is it similar to that or is it more nuanced?
1: The comparison between the two countries is usually rather simplistic and has an agenda behind it in just saying, oh, these are democracies that are being threatened by evil tyrants and the rehash of the domino theory. Oh, if Ukraine is invaded by an evil tyrant and we don't do anything, then China, nothing will stop them. In terms of identity, I would say... It's not super analogous. It is, for one thing, they speak. (laughs) There's not like really the language barrier. And it's a case, I don't think I'm fully qualified enough to delve into the nuances of Ukrainian identity, which is fraught Mm -hmm. with political landmines and whatnot. But yeah, there are large portions of what is now Ukraine that were part of Russia that were switched over. And when it was part of the Soviet Union, because it didn't mean anything then, and there's battles about what languages are taught in schools and air on the media and things like that. I'd say it's a contentious up in the air thing, where in Taiwan, it's all moving in one direction, which is we are Taiwanese. Okay older generation, there's some debate, but uh, I don't have the stats in front of me, but it's polling is very overwhelming in that younger people identify as Taiwanese, not as Chinese, and they don't have any kind of connection to the mainland that the older generation did.
0: Gotcha. Okay. What are the differences? So again, like you said, it it gets simplistic when You hear, I don't know that you hear people on social media talking about it. It typically tends to be like the think tank class talking about the analogous China invading Taiwan versus Russia invading Ukraine. What are the differences that you point out in your article between Ukraine and Taiwan being? So there's differences on two levels that are both
1: extreme. On the one hand are the grand strategic differences, just like geo, simple geography Ukraine was, when the invasion started about a year ago, Russia invaded on five fronts simultaneously. It shares this vast land border. Ukraine itself is huge and uh, it's just ended by, excuse me, by Belarus and Russia. Tens of thousands of troops can cross over very easily. Whereas in Taiwan, it's completely different. Taiwan is an island. Has basically has a 90-mile moat around it. And China is not Russia. China ha- also has a huge land border like Russia does. But uh, Russia has basically more or less eased all of its border disputes, notably with China itself. Just a few decades ago, there, the Soviet Union and China were shelling each other over a disputed island in the Amor River on the border. On paper, that's all been solved. Whereas China, just in the past few years, dozens of people have been killed, literally beaten to death in the contested border zone between India and China. Can't bring guns. They have this agreement where you can't bring guns within this, like, the sort of the zone of separation. So that's why people are beating each other to death with, like, spiked clubs. I guess
0: I haven't heard about that, that India and China and also... Vietnam, they play a role in this, in that they they really have to defend these borders pretty closely. What is the dispute? Is the dispute similar that well, like Pakistan and India always fight over territory because yes, this is it's, our it's literally land, right? that. Both sides okay.
1: occupy huge swaths of territory mm-hmm. way up in the mountains that each side says is the other's, and or well, fighting over inhabitable their. land. Yeah, uninhabitable, basically. Yeah, it's very remote. both sides have invested. Gajillions of dollars in infrastructure, <laughs> so they could shuttle up tens of thousands of troops into the mountains to fight if they needed to. But so there, whenever all these people were beaten to death, like soldiers fighting and whatnot, Indians went nuts, and Modi, this Hindu nationalism stuff. It's not a foregone conclusion that oh, this might not be seen as a a, te- a possible opportunity to revise these contested borders, and it's this problem has plagued China historically. Half of their armed forces are occupied. That's about a million men are occupied patrolling their ginormous borders. It's contested. And basically garrisoning their cities to suppress all of the dissent. We think of China as this totalitarian state, But there's lots of disruption, and we saw some of that with the protests against Zero COVID because it was such a crazy policy, and the government broke first because they were destroying Chinese society. So they half of their armed forces are already busy doing things that they can't be pulled away from, whereas Russia doesn't need to worry about China invading or Kazakhstan or Georgia. So that's a huge difference. It's also very different on the tactical level. Tactically, the Russians just walked into Ukraine. In, to invade Taiwan, it's very complicated. For one thing, this is the Chinese military itself only believes that there's basically two windows every year of roughly four weeks each or so, roughly, where the weather conditions in the Taiwan Strait would be suitable for a mass landing. There's a very limited number of beaches that are suitable for a mass amphibious assault. And that number has been going down because the Taiwanese have been geoengineering the landing potential landing zones for decades. It's not a great mystery where the Chinese troops could land, and the Taiwanese have had literal decades to map out all kinds of ways to kill people between that
0: beach and Taipei or or wherever. Yeah, we often, we were all, I, I don't I was shocked, at least by the Ukrainian resistance and how embedded it was. And I don't know that they had been thinking about it as intensely again, to go back to the simplistic comparison. But but it sounds based on your article that the Taiwanese are incredibly prepared and would meet with ferocious resistance. And it's also a million, 23 million people that live on Taiwan. How many soldiers could they procure? How many people would be ready to fight? What are some so, other what are some other instances of them having the ability to repel an invasion?
1: So in theory, they have two million reserves, and like they could call up two and a half million men with additional several million civil defense personnel in non-combat roles. I say theoretical. I would not say that Taiwan's very well prepared. This is a big issue. And it's something I've been working on more is how our involvement in Taiwan, in Ukraine, limits what we can sell to Taiwan and things like that. But it's just when the US and the allies thought they'd have to invade Taiwan, um, That was then called Formosa during World War II. The Japanese seized it from China at the beginning of the 20th century. They estimated they would need a ratio of five attackers to every one defender on the island. And that they would lose 100,000 men. I forget what the operation was called, but it was all planned out. And it's, wow, this will be a costly mess. China, we tend to think, oh, D-Day, we can just cross the Taiwan Strait, like crossing Normandy. That was an immense undertaking. The Allies landed about 100,000 troops on the first day. China does not have anywhere near that capacity. And also, <laughs> back to the tactical level, the Germans were defending the Atlantic Wall from the tip of Denmark way out to the Atlantic coast of France. Was, troops weren't deployed because there was fear of another landing would be taking place. and this, The first one was a diversion. It's much more simpler than that with Taiwan in terms of where the Chinese are going to be landing. And uh, the Taiwanese, assuming they don't just collapse into incompetence, will be able to field many times the number of troops China would be able to get on the beach. One study said that this is assuming no losses at all crossing the channel, both in air and by sea. China could land less than 30,000 troops on day one of the invasion.
0: I mean... 14 beaches with perfect weather, which it sounds like. So is the weather just very volatile around? Yes, it's very volatile
1: in the intervening months. And also, it's quite fascinating. There's it's just quirks of geography and whatnot. There aren't even necessarily regular predictable tides at some of these beaches. It's a huge issue in amphibious landings, basically where the tide level will be when we. it's important to have that all scheduled out. Or you could be looking at a 50-foot difference between where the troops are supposed to be and where they actually end up, and that's 50 more feet of kill zones and things like that
0: yeah but zach i've been watching a lot of cnn and reading (laughs) a lot of the new york times and china just seems to be unbeatable and we're always losing in war games to them and we're not prepared i just don't know they could overwhelm them they have a billion people that live on that so you're challenging that assumption that this is just some major military superpower that is ready to invade with child soldiers and a billion people
1: Right. Yes. And there's no doubt it would be a big mess. And I do, I, my stance, and I lay out this case at length in a white paper I wrote called Victory Without Battle, which was published by the John Quincy Adams Society, that Taiwan could defend itself from the invasion or, in the best case scenario, deter an invasion from happening in the first place without the U.S. explicitly defending Taiwan. And there was recently a war game scenario, oh, a series of war games, um, based entirely on public, publicly available information. Because you're quite right in, excuse me, in government, excuse me, in military-run war games, the U.S. usually loses. <laughs> but in this recent, very large war game run on publicly available information, in a bunch of different iterations, in all the base case scenarios the Taiwan with the United States is victorious, but it includes losing two aircraft carriers, which have 5,000 people each on them, by the way, and uh, like hundreds of planes. And it's just a very Pyrrhic victory. And this war game situation argued that Taiwan could not defend itself on its own. I contest that. But yeah, China, it's sort of China has not fought an actual war since they invaded Vietnam in the late 70s, early 80s, where they were slaughtered en masse. And China has no experience with amphibious warfare. They have no experience with mass missile attacks. This isn't to say that they could overcome it. You have to learn through mistakes and whatnot. But China is just... Has less experience fighting a modern war than we do, and we've been chasing the Taliban through caves for twenty years.
0: Yeah, which doesn't involve them. Obviously, the Navy was involved in the the various wars. Just to let you know that there's tapping on your desk that's coming through the. Oh. Yep, there's a notion that obviously the Navy was involved in those wars, but they were support, right? medical ships, moving aircraft, moving troops. There were obviously naval soldiers fighting in some of these battles, but it wasn't direct military combat like Midway, right? And I think in this situation, a lot of people think that the American naval might is unbeatable, which is always a huge mistake in any kind of historical analysis of anything. And if you look at any major war, the side that just is unbeatable it has rust. And we literally yeah. have rust. Tell us about the fitness of the United States Navy in regards to a combat situation which Yes, any US involvement in a, basically
1: intervening in a cross-strait invasion would be almost entirely naval. It is generally agreed it would it's not feasible to station US troops on Taiwan before an invasion because it would almost certainly incur the invasion itself from China going nuts. But also, in this war games I mentioned, where they tried to airlift troops to Taiwan, like two-thirds of them were shot out of the sky, like you'd be talking about losing thousands of Marines in a single day and things like that. So yeah, it'd be a, a naval fight. And basically, since the end of the Cold War, the Navy... Has been a floating bureaucracy slash ground attack platform. It's been launching cruise missiles at Iraq or or whatnot. They've not been fighting uh, a naval, traditional naval combat. And thanks to advances in defensive technology, China. Basically, it's estimated, can sink any vessel within 500 miles of their coastline. And there's also there's been other wargaming scenarios about all of our bases in Japan, for instance. They're basically sitting ducks. Even the best-case scenarios see hundreds of U.S. fighters and whatnot being destroyed on the ground, to basically in the first two days or so that the war has started, just thanks to long-range missile technology. And, um, so we'll be fighting 6,000 miles away from the United States, the continental United States. All of our bases and ships in port in Japan will basically be smoking craters. And we have no, we have basically no surplus battle repair capacity or plan to salvage. Say an aircraft carrier is disabled. We have no plan one to rescue the thousands of sailors that could still be alive. You'd have to send in more American vessels into a zone controlled by Taiwan uh, Chinese missiles or how to salvage a ship that can could potentially be saved. And these things cost billions of dollars. We're already at peacetime at we exceed our naval repair capacity, to give you any idea how of nuts it is to plan a naval war against China in our current state. So The odds are definitely not on our side for us doing all of the heavy lifting on Taiwan's behalf, which is basically what a lot of people advocate for.
0: All right. So what's the takeaway? It sounds like to me, Zach, you're just going to let these poor Taiwanese die. That's the argument in in Ukraine, too, that if we stop supporting Ukraine, it's just going to be genocide. There'll be genocide in Taiwan if America doesn't get involved. Take on that analysis.
1: Right. To look, to answer this question. You have to, it depends where you sort of, what do you think the purpose of American foreign policy is? I think the, Ameri- the purpose of American foreign policy is to defend American national interests. These are things related to the existential protection of the United States and our way of life. And while I have sympathy for the people of Ukraine who are suffering immensely because of this unjust invasion, the reality is that it is, Of no consequence to the security of the United States, who controls what part of Ukraine or whether Ukraine exists at all. That is not to say, oh, go Putin or something like that, but it is just a fact of life. Now with Taiwan, it is my view that it is in our interest for Taiwan to remain de facto independent. But I would argue that interest does not extend all the way to going to war for them because the cost would be immense. And China has a lot of structural weaknesses that I think even were they to capture Taiwan would hardly herald the end of the world. But I would argue that our best course of action, given this assessment of it is in our interest for Taiwan to remain independent, but not in our interest to defend it ourselves, we should sell them lots of weapons and facilitate their ability to deter and, if necessary, defeat an invasion, potentially with Japan's help, but not with ours. (laughs) And we're a long way from that happening. Just to be realistic, my view is not prevalent. But I would then say that our involvement in Ukraine is subtracting from our ability to accomplish that with Taiwan. There is already a $19 billion backlog in weapons that Taiwan has ordered, and they've been approved by the government from the United States. $19 billion backlog. Not all of that is due to Ukraine, but now it is certainly making things worse. Another issue is that the Taiwanese themselves, like unfortunately most of the rest of the world, are prone to free riding. Uh, Lots of polling, several polls have indicated a large majority of the Taiwanese people say they would fight to defend Taiwan. Then they go and in the same poll say, but Japan and the U.S. will rush in and we won't have to do much. So within Taiwan itself, there is a great like American (laughs) war planners and whatnot are very frustrated with the Taiwanese military, which has said they're going to adopt a more asymmetrical defensive strategy. Because prior, roughly until some point in the 90s, Taiwan could have defeated China sort of. Ship to ship, mano y mano. That's not possible anymore. And it's basic. Taiwan's entire air force would probably be wiped out within the first few days of the conflict. They do have protected bunkers and whatnot, but they're, they are, they would be outclassed by Chinese fifth generation fighters and things like that. They, their entire navy is basically useless. I mean, they literally commissioned like a marine amphibious assault ship recently. What the heck would they do with that?
0: You're going to be playing defense. You're not going to be invading with
1: a single ship. You do, and you uh, at the role the U.S. has here is Congress can allow and disallow arms sales. So. I would argue that Congress should be very strategic in what arms sales they approve. It's probably not a great idea to continue to approve the sale of Abrams tanks to Taiwan. It's questionable how much use that would be. In the some people say it's absolutely no use. I'm more agnostic. I think let's hear them make their case. But you know what we should be selling to Taiwan: thousands of Stinger missiles, right?
0: Thousands yeah. anti-aircraft of, missiles, yeah.
1: Yes, thousands of Javelin missiles. But guess what? The backlog in the very small number of those that Taiwan has ordered, and we've literally given away a third of our Javelin missile stockpile to Ukraine. The War Games estimated that uh, Taiwan has three months' worth of shells. The U.S. has given, as of uh, sometime in January, over a million shells to Ukraine, At current production levels, we cannot replace those shells because everything we produce is used up in our military's training exercises. We don't know the exact size of our stockpile of shells, but the longer the war with Ukraine goes on and the longer we're literally just giving away literally years and years worth of production from our stockpiles, the less we'd be able to, in my view, we should be selling to Taiwan. And that would indicate that we're serious about helping the Taiwanese help themselves rather than us doing everything for them.
0: So why do you see them as a strategic partner to support, whereas Ukraine, not as much? What makes them typically, those of us who are on the non-interventionist side, which I'm guessing you're probably part of uh, somewhat, what makes Taiwan different. Why should libertarians not just wash their hands completely and say this is not something we should support?
1: I would say you have to compare Russia and China. Uh, I would say that Russia is a great power, but it is clinging on. They are the world's largest nuclear arsenal. They're the world's largest country. They're not irrelevant. But I would say I, I'm hard pressed to understand what threat Russia is to the United States. There's the Oh my goodness! Election interference and all that kind of nonsense, but they're not an existential threat to us, short of we
0: somehow stumble into. They they're getting beat by Ukrainian farmers, right? Yes. Now, now mean, of course, now that all that's moved in, but the first, their best invasion wasn't that good.
1: Yes, it's there's it's very strange. The blob, the foreign policy status quo, maintains two seemingly Im- mutually impossible views. One. Russia is constantly on the verge of defeat and losing in Ukraine, yet at the same time, they could also be in Paris in a week if we don't throw everything we have and give it to Ukraine. Now, China, on the other hand, I do not, I'm do. i not paranoid about China. I don't lay awake at night worrying about them. But uh, my view of the world, I'd consider myself, interventionist is, yes, it, i Generally non-interventionist, but I'd say I'm in favor of realism and restraint. And one of the core components of realist thought in international relations is that the future is radically uncertain. We don't know for sure how the future is going to turn out. Just think back to 1923. No one then could predict how the world looks now, and notably predict, and no one now can predict how the world will look in a hundred years, and. China has immense problems demographically. They're polluted beyond all belief. Even their groundwater is (laughs) like a majority of it's unsuitable for even industrial uses. It's so polluted. The desertification, the Gobi Desert's like 100 miles from Beijing, things like that. They've got immense problems. But I would say they pose a much larger threat, small though it may be, compared to Russia. And That is why I would say it's better, all other things being equal, that Taiwan remains de facto independent because basically it contains Chinese energy. It's a great point of nationalism and whatnot. To reclaim Taiwan, which is a living vestige of the century of humiliation where Japan and the Westerners just ran roughshod over this great, ancient, proud civilization... And uh, they're not going to be doing much else, I would say, other, you know, unless Taiwan were to fall, though, it's not the end of the world either. They'd have a ginormous, a big job to clean up. (laughs) And uh, Chinese war planners themselves are like, yeah, everyone who survives is going to hate our guts and will probably try and kill us. So I don't think it would be some simple, easy uh, pill for China to swallow Taiwan. Other people disagree. But my, my my view is it's just it makes sense for us to sell weapons to Taiwan to help them defend themselves rather than us doing it for them, which is more or less what current policy seems to be.
0: All right, Zach, shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow you if they want to learn more about this and other subjects?
1: Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Zachary Yost. You can also subscribe to the War Economy and State podcast. I host that with Ryan McMakin at the Mises Institute. And you can subscribe to my Substack, the Yost
0: Post. All right. Thanks so much, Zach. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you, listener, for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show. If you learned something, you found this interesting, which I'm sure you did, then the best thing you can do to support Zach, myself, and any other creator you like is to share it with your friends. So thank you for listening here on The Chris Spangle Show.